Are you the world's greatest dad? There's a pretty good chance someone might have actually said that about you. Maybe it was printed on that mug you received or in that greeting card that all of your kids signed. Maybe it was part of that gushing post that your wife put on social media. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'd agree that it's kind of nice, even if just for one day, to be called the world's greatest dad. But aside from the fact that it's impossible for more than one of us to actually have that title, I'm guessing that most of the time you know that it's just not true. Sure, your cheesy dad jokes might be cheesier than anyone else's, and your dad bod might be getting better each and every year, but, but aside from that, I'm guessing that if you're anything like me, your shortcomings as a father are all too obvious to you and very often painful to think about. If that's the case, I've got some fantastic news for you this week. The Bible is full of terrible fathers. Page after page, we find men who made absolute messes of their lives and messes of their families. And I, I'm excited to tell you about some of them this week. Not because it might make you feel better that at least there are dads worse than you, but because it illustrates what being a Christian father is really all about. Being a Christian father doesn't mean that you always get it right. It doesn't mean that you can solve every problem or clean up every mess. No, instead, God has given us this incredible responsibility of being right on the front lines as this small group of people that we call our family makes its way through this big, scary world. God has given us the responsibility of, of taking the lead in showing that the only way to get through that big, scary world is by constantly trusting in Jesus. In other words, God doesn't call us to be the world's greatest dads, whatever that even means. No, instead, God wants us to be fathers who are full of faith. It kind of reminds me of one of those dads that's mentioned in the Bible. He's not even mentioned by name, which is kind of nice because it, it helps all of us put ourselves in his shoes. In fact, just for fun, let's call him John. John was at the end of his rope. John had a son who was possessed by an evil spirit that constantly was throwing him into these debilitating convulsions. And John was frustrated and confused as to why no one could help. In fact, when Jesus showed up, he thought that maybe even Jesus was unable to do anything about it. And that's when Jesus reminded him that nothing is impossible for the man who puts his trust in Jesus. Nothing is impossible for a father full of faith. And that's when John said to Jesus, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I don't know about you, but that's something that I need to ask for all the time. Lord, help me overcome my unbelief. Lord, don't give my kids a dad who always gets it right. Don't give them a dad who can fix every problem and clean up every mess. Don't give my kids the world's greatest dad. No, give them a father full of faith. As a child, I distinctly remember wondering at one point if my dad ever sinned. I knew from the Bible, of course, that everybody sins, and so my dad must sin too, but but I never actually saw it. I suppose part of that is the fact that God blessed me with a pretty good dad and, 
And part of it was probably that I, I simply assumed that because he was dad, whatever he did, he had the right to do. If he did something, it must be okay. Do you think your kids ever wonder that about you? I know my kids don't. And it kind of kills me. As fathers, we know that it's part of our job to teach our kids right from wrong. We want to set good examples for them. We want to be great role models for them. And then there's that first time when your kids see you do something that you're absolutely ashamed of, but you know you can't take back. There's that first time when you see your kids do something and you know it's because they learned it from you. There's that first time you see your kids do something in spite of the fact that they didn't learn it from you. We quickly find out that none of us can be perfect role models for our kids and none of us can raise perfect children. Do you know whose fault that is? It's Adam's. Adam was the one father who had the opportunity to be the perfect role model and raise perfect children. But when he and his wife Eve ate that forbidden fruit, all of that was ruined. When Adam and Eve had children, they were born already sinful. As were their children and their children and your parents' children and your children. None of us can raise perfect children. And you can imagine how it must have killed Adam to watch as his sin was passed from one generation to the next. I'm guessing it caused Adam to take his job pretty seriously. See, shortly after Adam and Eve disobeyed God, God graciously promised to send a Savior, one who would be perfect, not as a role model for them, but as their substitute. One whose perfection didn't need to be copied or duplicated, but one whose perfection would count for us all. In the book of Romans, Paul puts it this way, Just as through the disobedience of the one man, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Even as Adam watched as sin was passed on from generation to generation, he could also watch as that promise of a Savior was handed down from one generation to the next. What does it mean to be a father who's full of faith? Rather than being the perfect role model for your kids, it means being very quick to point them to their perfect substitute. It means being the first and the fastest to ask for forgiveness when you have sinned. It means being the first and the fastest to offer forgiveness when they have. It means that even though the very first gift you ever gave them was your sin, the second gift you can give them is the gift of their Savior. Rather than having kids who think that their dad always gets it right, give them a father who's full of faith, who quickly points them to the one who did. When you picture a terrible father, you probably picture someone who doesn't love his children enough. But what about a father who loves his children too much? We've all seen it, haven't we? Maybe even in our own lives. A father whose children are his absolute pride and joy, whose success is tied to their success, whose happiness is tied to their happiness. A father who loves his children more than anything else, who literally idolizes them. 
you know who that's not good for? It's obviously not good for the dad. His children will never be able to deliver what he is looking for in them. But as you can imagine, it's not good for the kids either. That kind of weight, those kinds of expectations are absolutely crushing. In fact, nothing is worse than someone depending on us for their joy and fulfillment in life. That maybe helps us understand why God asked a father named Abraham to do something that seems so strange. In the Bible, the story of Abraham sort of revolves around the promise of a son that God would give to him and his wife Sarah. And yet, even before that son was born, Abraham sort of showed that he loved that son a little too much. When Abraham got impatient, waiting for that son to arrive, he decided that he was going to have another son with another woman. And when God made it clear that wasn't the son that God had promised, Abraham was anything but a good and loving father to that son. But then after 25 years of waiting, that son finally arrived. You can imagine how Abraham might have been tempted not just to love his son Isaac, but to love him too much. And so God asked Abraham to give his son up, to offer him as a sacrifice to God, to demonstrate that as much as he loved his son, he loved God even more. And this time, Abraham passed the test. Rather than loving his son more than anything else, Abraham trusted that God was going to provide, that, that somehow God was going to figure this out, not just for Abraham, but also for Isaac. As fathers, we naturally think of it as part of our job to provide for our children what they need. But very often, we can mistakenly look to them to provide us with what we need. Maybe by the time we enter into fatherhood, life hasn't exactly shaped up to what we hoped it would be. Career aspirations have turned into nothing more than a daily grind as we clock in and clock out of our jobs. The thrill and the romance of dating life has sort of lost its luster in marriage. Maybe life seems like nothing more than this endless list of duties and obligations. And so it's no wonder why parents sometimes idolize their kids. Why they look to bring back some of that joy, some of that excitement and optimism about life through their children, why they end up loving their children too much. In response, I'm pretty sure God isn't going to ask you to sacrifice your children. But in a very real way, God does ask us to give our children up, to turn away from them as the source of all that we need, including our joy and fulfillment in life, to turn to Him for those things instead. In the book of Romans, Paul says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The very same God who loved us so much that he did in fact give up his son promises to provide us with all that we need, including the joy and fulfillment that we so desperately crave. Rather than our kids needing parents who love them more than anything, our kids need fathers who are full of faith. Fathers who look for everything that they need, not in them, but in God. I can still see the look in her eyes. 
One of my daughters has this really nice jewelry box that she got as a birthday present. Only one day, the lock on the jewelry box broke. And so not only was she no longer able to use the jewelry box, but some of her favorite jewelry was locked inside. And so she brought it to me, hoping that somehow I could fix it. And sure enough, with, with the help of a, a little tiny screwdriver and a whole lot of wiggling, I was able to release the lock and the lid opened up. I can still see the look in her eyes. That's a look that fathers love, isn't it? We love it when our children think that we can fix any problem, that we can make any mess go away. We love seeing the admiration in their eyes as their faces light up. But I'm guessing that all of us as fathers have run into problems that we can't fix or problems that we realized that we shouldn't fix. What then? In the Bible, we meet a man who seemed to think he always needed to fix everything, and not in a good way. His name was Jacob, and no matter what the problem was, Jacob tried to fix it. No matter what it took, no matter what it cost, no matter who got hurt. You read Jacob's story, and it's full of things like lies and deception, polygamy and adultery, corruption, sibling rivalry, favoritism among children. It's, it's the story of one of the most messed up and dysfunctional families you could ever imagine. And so it seems a bit strange that out of all the names God could use to refer to himself, that one of them would be the God of Jacob. How is that a good description of our God? Why would God tie his holy name to the name of such a flawed and broken man? Well, it seems as though that specific designation God gives for himself is a way of reminding us that he is the God for people who need to be reminded that they can't fix everything. He's the God of people who need to be reminded of their limits. People who need to be reminded that there are problems that they can't or shouldn't solve. In fact, people who need to be reminded that it's a good thing when they're brought to the limit of their ability to solve a problem because that's when the necessity of trusting in God begins. One of those sections of the Bible where God is referred to as the God of Jacob is Psalm 46. And there it says, Be still and know that I am God. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. As dads, we love it when our kids' eyes light up with admiration. We love being able to fix problems and clean up messes. But rather than needing a dad who can fix everything, our, our kids need dads who are full of faith. Rather than needing a dad who can fix absolutely every problem, our kids need dads who can be still and know that the Lord is God. Yesterday I mentioned that wonderful look that lights up a child's face when their dad fixes some seemingly unfixable problem. Well, unfortunately, that look has a counterpart. It's the look when a child falls off her bike and scrapes her knee. It's the look when a child gets distracted in a crowded place and suddenly can't find mom or dad. It's the look when a child is playing catch with his father and the ball grazes off his glove and hits him right in the chest. It's the look that says, how could you have let that happen to me?
Why didn't you stop that? Why didn't you keep me safe? That's a look that dads hate. Every dad wants to be a superhero for their children. To be able to protect them from every danger, to be able to fend off every possible crisis. And yet, deep down, we know that we can't. We're sending our children out into a big, scary world. A world that is full of bullies and terrorists. A world that is full of school shootings and distracted drivers. And even aside from all of those external dangers, we know that we've handed down to our children our sin, which means that we've also handed down to them a death sentence. We know that we can't possibly be the superhero that our children need. But thankfully, every dad knows someone who can. Back in Jesus' day, there was a father by the name of Jairus. Jairus had a 12-year-old girl who was dying. And so Jairus called on Jesus. Jairus went to Jesus because he figured Jesus could help. Jesus could take whatever was causing her to be sick and make it go away. But then when Jairus was talking with Jesus, someone came from the house and let them know that the girl had died. It was too late. Nothing more could be done. He might as well leave Jesus alone. But that's when Jesus demonstrated that he was even more powerful than Jairus could have imagined. Jesus went to the house where they were all mourning the death of this girl and he said, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. Jesus looked at the worst and scariest enemy that we have and he referred to it by a term that not only are we not scared of, but that we actually welcome and cherish. He called death sleep. Now, on its face, that claim seems laughable, and that's what everyone did that day. They laughed. But Jesus backed up that claim by raising that little girl from the dead, and he ultimately robbed death of all of its power once and for all by his own resurrection from the dead on Easter Sunday. Does it scare you, the thought of sending your children out into this big, scary world? It's easy to see why it could. But let me ask, does it scare you when you put your children down for bed at night? As you tuck them in and kiss them goodnight, are you worried sick that you're never going to see them again? Of course not. Because you know that they're going to wake up and, and probably much too early. That's the very same calm and very same confidence that we can have as fathers. Our children don't need dads whose arms are strong enough to protect them from every possible danger. No, our kids need fathers who are full of faith. Fathers who know how to put them in the strongest arms that there are. The arms of Jesus. The one for whom even death itself is nothing more than sleep. Hey, what's up everyone? Pastor Mike here from Time of Grace. Thanks so much for checking out this podcast. Uh, we certainly would love this message to reach more and more people. So if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing this podcast, it would bring it to more people's eyes and we pray this message into more people's hearts. Thanks for your support and we'll talk to you soon.